The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. Our bread for the journey this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be looking at uh, Matthew 1 and 2 during Advent in a series we call Naked Humanity because Matthew begins his good news of Jesus Christ with a high degree of realism. And it isn't always pretty. Last week we saw that he gives us a genealogy, which is a, a na- uh, all the names in a story. Today, as he moves into the narrative itself, we get a story of names. Proverbs 22.1 says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Uh, a good name. How's your name? I've been, geez, I've been meeting so many people here. You're all good to continue to share your name with me. I'm tempted to forget my own. And I think we do sometimes, don't we? We forget our own names, who we really are. After all, a name is more than just a designation or a label for that thing, isn't it? Or that person. Although I served as a chaplain at MIT for a number of years. And you know that there the, the buildings don't have names. They have numbers. Building 4, Building 7. I suspected that when I left the room, I also had a numeric designation rather than George. We forget our names. And a name is more than just a label. It's supposed to tell us something about ourselves. Some kind of aspiration, faith or charity or relation to a family member, George. Or perhaps uh, our names describe our reputation when we think more broadly about our name. We want to have a good name. We want to have a, a good reputation. 1968, the Atlantic Constitution uh, shared a story about a woman who had hired a well-known writer at the time to write a biography of her genealogy to tell the family history. But in the course of doing his research, this uh, writer uncovered the fact that her great-grandfather had been a convict. He'd been sent to Sing Sing and executed for a capital crime. And she was so embarrassed that he had discovered this uh, shameful secret about her family. She begged him, please, can you just leave that part out? But out of journalistic integrity, the writer said, no, I I have to say something about it. So this is how it came out. He wrote, one of her grandfathers occupied the chair of applied electricity (laughs) in one of America's best-known institutions. He was very much attached to his position and literally died in the harness. Well, there are four names in this story of names. It's a story of shame as well as name. And I would invite you to look for those names as I read this text. We're looking today at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you're visiting, you'll find on the Pew Bible this text on page 783. So Matthew begins the story of Jesus the Messiah. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. 
But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son. And he named him Jesus. It's a strange way to begin the Christmas story, don't you think? With a divorce. I mean, this is not the way we like to tell the story on Christmas Eve to our children. Story of divorce. We much prefer a story that involves angels with happy brass, trumpets, you know, peace and goodwill among men and little cuddly animals snuggling up next to each other and nuzzling us with their wet noses. You know, a groom who lovingly wraps a shawl across his wife's shoulders and she returns the gesture looking with a glint in her eye and treasuring the moment in her heart. You know, this is the Christmas that we want. Christmas of tranquility and peace and happiness. But then there's another story at Christmas time, isn't there? There's the story that Matthew tells, a story of scandal, a story that begins with divorce. Divorce, the story of divorce is an ugly story. It begins oftentimes in a kitchen with red eyes and raised voices, a pounding fist on the table, suitcases packed and thrown out on the street. Receipts thrown in somebody's faces, accusations, names that are spoiled, despoiled, broken and thrown away. Is that the way we want to begin Christmas? With scandal? Well, these are the realities of our first name. The name is Joseph. Joseph. Well, I'm going to skip over Mary, you noticed immediately. Because, you know, Mary gets, you know... The normal story we tell about Christmas comes from the first two chapters of Luke. And I would consider that a very feminine nativity. But I think what Matthew gives us is the masculine nativity. Right, guys? I mean, let's, first of all, the story in Luke takes two whole chapters, right? Gabriel appears, you know, and they're going to each other's cousin's house, and babies are leaping in the womb, you know, they're singing songs, you know. That's Luke's story of Christmas. But Matthew's story, it's only eight verses, you know. And we get a guy who's sitting on a bench, you know, with a tool in his hand. He's scratching his head, his head, trying to figure out what to do. He gets a little input and then he does it. And he doesn't have to say a word. <laughs> Matthew doesn't show much interest in Mary. That's for Luke. Matthew wants us to focus first on Joseph. That's our first name. And we don't know much about him. We find out later, if we read the whole gospel, that he's a carpenter. He's, he's just a guy, you know. He works with tools, and he's a good guy. We find out he's righteous man. That doesn't mean he's perfect. But it means he takes God very, very seriously. 
He knows his creator and he knows that the way to life is found in the instructions his creator uh, gives. Joseph. The name comes from a Hebrew word, the verb to add. Joseph means let him add. That's interesting. Probably expresses the aspirations of parents who wish that one day their son would have many sons. Let the Lord add sons. Well, there's an irony. I mean, here Joseph is and the Lord is already adding. And there have been no sexual intercourse. You may know that marriage is a two-step process in in this day in Palestine. And uh, where we exchange vows and do it all at once. The vows vows of consent uh, are at at the beginning of this process. That's the beginning of betrothal. That period lasts a year. In Nazareth, these two would have lived... Possibly, probably in the same city, but not in the same home. Mary would be living with her family in her, her parental house, family of origin. Joseph would be living in his home. And then after a year, there'd be a ceremonial parade. And they would sing and they would march. They would take Mary into Joseph's home where they would consummate the marriage. It was forbidden to have uh, sexual relations until the marriage was completed. The, the wedding party in the home. And they haven't done that yet. And so Joseph is scratching his beard. I think his eyes are red as he sits on his bench. Well, the reader knows that the Holy Spirit's involved, but Joseph hasn't been told yet. No, Joseph, we see in verse 18, has simply found that his wife is with child. We know how that happens. She begins to change. She's showing. What? Is going on. This is surely a scandal. Joseph asks himself questions. What should I do? What should I do? How do I respond to this? Infidelity. Well, there are things I can do. Moses had told us that if a man finds something indecent in his wife, he can write a certificate of divorce. I could divorce her. But Joseph is a righteous man. And he likely reads the prophets. In the last book of the prophets, the very last book, Malachi, the Lord speaks. And in it, he says, and Joseph trembles with fear, the Lord hates divorce. Well, that doesn't sound like a very good option to a righteous man. Well, hey, I've been implicated in this myself, he says. Well, what about punishment? Well, Moses had allowed for various remedies, legal remedies in the case of this sort of a thing. If a woman had been found who was engaged, she'd been found with child, then we would need to know a couple of things. Did the incident happen in the city? If it happened in the city, we presume she could have yelled for help, but didn't, so she's complicit. Both man and woman should be stoned. If it happened out in the open country... Well, crying for help would have helped this woman, so we assume that she's innocent and the man will be stoned. That doesn't sound so good. There was another provision. If on the wedding night, the night of the consummation of this marriage, the man was jealous, having reason to believe that his wife were not a virgin and the parents couldn't produce evidence of her virginity, then there could be a trial by ordeal. The priest, if she were guilty, she would be cursed. Or, I could just capitulate. 
that I could just give in and do nothing. Play along as though I were the father. I could lie. I could accept the guilt as my own guilt. But because Joseph is a righteous man, when this unexpected addition comes to his life, he decides the best thing to do is simply to divorce her, but to do so very quietly, not to bring any shame or disgrace to this woman whom he had planned to live in love. Joseph is the name that tells us that you and I, friends, live in human scandal. Joseph goes to bed, we assume, that night, having made this decision. And as he sleeps, there's an interruption. Surprising, Joseph dreams a dream. And in the dream, there is a voice, an angel we read here, really a messenger. That's all that angel means. And we shouldn't be thinking of medieval paintings or seraphim in Revelation or in Isaiah or Ezekiel, Daniel. No, simply a messenger of the Lord, someone who comes to speak to Joseph. And this is what Joseph hears. Verse 20, Joseph, son of David. Son of David. What thought must have crossed Joseph's mind as he sleeps and hears that address towards him? Well, Matthew uses that phrase a lot, but he's very jealous of it. Never for anybody other than Jesus, the Christ, except here. Well, I know that David had a son. David had had his own scandal, a disgrace, a sexual disgrace. And the child of that union was named Solomon. In the spring, when the kings go out to war, David, for some reason, stays home, prancing around on the roof of his castle or his palace, watching MTV. And there's Bathsheba taking a bath on her roof, which is an interesting choice. (laughs) And David succumbs to lust. And he finds himself doing that which the man after God's heart would never thought he ever would have done. Where has my name gone into shame, and there's a child. The son of David is Solomon. And the prophet would come, and he would tell David a sweet story about lambs and a man who had many going to take one from a man who had only one. This is Uriah, one of his great generals, whom David would have murdered. And then Nathan would point the finger into David's face and said, You are that man. Scandal. But the same Nathan, under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, would pronounce other words to David as well. He would say in 2 Samuel chapter 7 this, the Lord speaking through Nathan to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I, the Lord, will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. What did David think? That he would someday have a son whose father would be the Lord. Joseph, son of David. Do not be afraid to marry this woman. 
David is the name that tells us that human scandal is overcome by an eternal power. If you were here last week, you heard that Matthew begins his whole gospel with an interesting word. He says the book of the Genesis. And here again, in verse 18, in Greek, the word is not birth, the normal word for birth. It's the word is Genesis. Now, the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, he recalls us. This is a whole new creation on an order the likes of which the world has never known when this one is born. And we remember that over the chaotic waters, the formless and void, there is a Holy Spirit hovering. This same Holy Spirit who has hovered over Mary, this scandalous woman, and shaped a child. The Holy Spirit comes with power. That same Holy Spirit, friends, who has been promised to you and to me and to all who know the name of Jesus Christ and lifted in faith. Beware, Annie Dillard says. She writes, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, making up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' hats and straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. There's a great eternal power in this coming king. It's the power of the spirit. Well, the dream continues. And so does the voice of the messenger with an instruction now. He says to Joseph, verse 21, you're to give this child a name. The father always names his son. Name him Joshua. Joshua, you say. But it said Jesus. Well, Jesus is the Greek transliteration of Joshua. The name is Yeshua. And so if you read the Greek Old Testament translation made in the third century B.C., Hebrew into Greek, you would read of ten spies who are sent from the wilderness of Paran to go and investigate the promised land. And they come back and they say, indeed, the land is precious, beautiful, flowing with milk and honey. God has given us a great promise. But there's a problem. It's well fortified. The technology is well advanced of our own. The people are wicked, evil, nasty people. They're tall. They're giants. We better sit tight. It would be better for us to die in the wilderness. But for there are two. There's this Caleb and there's this Jesus, this Yeshua, Joshua, who say, let's go for it. Joshua is a conqueror. And the name Joshua or Jesus means Yahweh saves. He will go eventually before the people as Moses' successor, lead them in holy war as God brings judgment upon his enemies and fulfills the promises to his people. The Lord saves. Well, Joseph will know that there's a greater scandal in the land than his own. 
There's a greater shame than the uh, presumed illegitimacy of his son. And that shame is the shame of the Roman Empire, who lies now in oppression over Palestine. Because this land is the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that Joseph, uh, Joshua had seized. But God's glory is no longer in his temple. And we are no longer enjoying the blessing, the shalom of God in this land. That is scandal, friends. But is God sending us a warrior? Has Joshua come back to fight our enemies? Is this the eternal power for which we have long waited? Well, there's a surprise. There's a surprise for all of us. Yes, he's come back. But there's a greater enemy than the Romans. There's a greater enemy than anything external. Jesus would teach, it's not what's outside a man that defiles him, but what comes from within. This messenger quotes in verse 21 at the end, it says, For he will save his people from their sins. This reference to Psalm 130. Listen to the cry, the deepest cry of the human heart. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? That there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. That's the promise that Joseph hears in that dream that night. Joshua is the name that tells us that the eternal power that overcomes human scandal does so by defeating not an external enemy, but an internal enemy. Sin is the toxin that kills us. God is our creator. He has made life and us for life to the full. And yet we have exchanged all of that for the the petty the, the petty prerogative of the sovereignty of the self. That's all we get in the transaction and Augustus reminds us that when we turn from God who is all things and the creator of all things, we step Slowly into nothingness. It wouldn't take Joshua to defeat the Roman Empire. Last I checked, they're not around now, are they? One of their own historians, Livy, in his history of Rome, describes the fall of Rome in the same terms, in this toxin we call sin. Livy writes, of late years, wealth has made us greedy. And self-indulgence has brought us through every form of sensual excess to be, if I may so put it, in love with death. Well, how will Joshua, Jesus, defeat an internal enemy? There's a fourth name. We see it in verse 23. It's a quotation from the prophet We're told the prophet is Isaiah. Do you remember Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry in chapter six? 
He has a vision of the holy creator who is life. Holy, holy, holy Lord. And then he says immediately, woe is unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He knows the internal enemy and he is mildly afraid. But God says, come and he cleanses him of his sin with a coal to his lips. And then he says, I have a ministry for you, Isaiah. It's a ministry, unfortunately for you, of judgment. Because the period in which I will dwell with my people in a very visible way, called Israel, has come to an end. It is coming to an end. And I will bring foreign powers against them and remove them from the land. It's a season of judgment on sin. And in the following couple of chapters, chapter 7, 8, and 9, God begins to tell Isaiah that there will be children who are born, and they have interesting names. And in chapter 7, one of them uh, is to be named Emmanuel, to be born to a woman, a young woman of marriageable age, is really the word that's used in Hebrew. Usually this would be a virgin, but not necessarily, so scholars have debated back and forth. But what happens is, as you read, as the Jews had read this passage through time, they begin to see from, from Isaiah 6 to Isaiah 9, which culminates Isaiah 9 with one who would be a child who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This child could be none other than God himself. They begin to look for a sign. A miraculous sign. Isaiah had said to the king when Jerusalem is embattled in chapter 7, ask God for a sign. Ask him for a sign that's deeper than Sheol, the grave, and higher than heaven. Interesting choice. And the sign is this. The child will be born to a virgin, and his name will be called Emmanuel. God is with us. The doctrine that comes from this passage is properly called the doctrine of the virginal conception. Not a lot of witnesses to this doctrine. It's a very private thing. If you struggle to believe it, I understand that. It's a hard doctrine. But I think there are good reasons to believe it. But all I want to say before us this morning is just simply that it didn't have to happen this way, did it? God didn't have to come through a birth. He didn't have to come to a woman who is engaged who had no children, he didn't have to come to a virgin. He could have come to a single woman. He could have come to a widow. He could have come, if he were to come to a child, to a woman who was married but had no children or had some. He could have done it any way that he wanted. The Holy Spirit is that powerful. And yet he decided to enter into a scandal. Why does he do it? I believe he does it because you and I live with scandal. Friends, as a pastor, you hear a lot of secrets. And I know that each and every one of us, myself included, carries secrets. There's a name by which we know ourselves that's not a very kind name, not a very generous name, but unfortunately, it is far too true. I have killed somebody. I have been raped. I struggle with pornography. I lie. I fail every time I try a relationship. These are the secrets. These are the names by which we know ourselves. And there's a freedom in not having to deny those names. So God comes in scandal 
to us so that we could be who we really are. People who know Jesus in this way may look bad, but they're getting better. People who cannot accept this truth may look good, but they're getting worse. Simon, when he confessed the name of Jesus, he is the Christ. Jesus changed his name, didn't he? And Matthew will end this story telling us that those of us who are baptized as followers of Jesus will take in the waters of baptism a new name. You are baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. What is your name today? Those of us who confess in the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, can know we have a new name. God is with us. Let's pray. When you come, holy child of God, you step into shame and scandal, the stigma of illegitimacy that will follow you throughout the earthly ministry and follow you for generations beyond. Those of us who know Jesus Christ and his grace, we rejoice in that reality. We rejoice that we have been set free from the scandal of our own lives. That no matter where our name has been taken, no matter how we have disvalued it, We in Jesus Christ are given a new name. This we claim this morning with great thanksgiving. Help us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www dot upc dot org forward slash audio email audio at upc dot org or call two oh six five two four seven three zero one extension one one seven